welcome to the Empowered Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Shooter, Certified Lifestyle Medicine Practitioner. My aim is to help everyday people understand science, not the science, and to use that understanding to make better choices for their health and well-being. Each episode, I'll be bringing my latest Substack post to you in audio form. For the full visual experience, including graphs, charts, images, and videos, view the accompanying post in my Empowered Substack. And now, let's dive in. Episode 110, The Perils of Proton Pump Inhibitors, Part 3. In Part 1 of this mini-series on proton pump inhibitors, which I'll henceforth refer to as PPIs, I covered the basics, how these drugs work, what they're supposed to be prescribed for, and the deeply concerning rate of inappropriate use of these medications. In Part 2, I examined the known and suspected adverse effects of PPIs and some of the mechanisms which drive these harms. And now, in the final instalment in this series, I'll outline how to stop taking PPI safely and how you might go about repairing any damage they might have caused. Decision time. When should you think about stopping a PPI? In a nutshell, if either, A, you don't have a clinical indication for using one, that is, you're not suffering from the short list of conditions for which PPIs have been found to be effective, go back and listen to part one. And given the evidence that I summarised in part one that up to 84% of people taking a PPI are doing so inappropriately, either with no indication, incorrect dose, or long-term use when short-term is all that's required, there's a very good chance that you fall into this category. Or B, you have not implemented lifestyle changes, which I'll be discussing shortly, that are known to decrease the underlying promoters of reflux and its most serious long-term complication, cancer of the esophagus. PPIs do not address these underlying factors, and in fact, long-term PPI use appears to substantially increase the risk of esophageal cancer. Or C, you are at high risk of, or are already experiencing, any of the serious adverse effects of PPIs that I described in Part 2. How to stop taking a PPI If you've listened to Part 1 and Part 2, you might be tempted to just stop taking your PPI. That's not necessarily a good idea. As a study of healthy volunteers with no reflux-related disease found, as little as eight weeks of PPI treatment can cause oversecretion of the stomach hormone gastrin, which results in rebound acid hypersecretion and acid-related symptoms after abrupt cessation of the drug. Yes, you heard that correctly. The drug that you were taking to suppress acid reflux can trigger worse symptoms if you suddenly stop taking it. No wonder so many people end up taking these drugs for years. Fortunately, slowly tapering the dose of a PPI allows most people to eventually stop taking the drug altogether without their symptoms returning. Here's how to taper off a PPI. Step 1. Share the de-prescribing resources that I've listed at the end of the post accompanying this podcast episode with your doctor and ask him or her to assist with your PPI taper by prescribing the next lowest dose of the medication you're currently taking. Usually this will be half your current dose. Stay on this reduced dose for four to eight weeks depending on how long you've been taking a PPI. You can use any of the following for symptom relief during a PPI taper and to treat the underlying cause or causes of the condition or conditions for which you were prescribed a PPI. Firstly, zinc L-carnosine. This specific formulation of zinc has a slow dissociation rate in the stomach, meaning that it hangs around there for a prolonged period where it can exert therapeutic effects on inflamed and ulcerated tissue. Zinc L-carnosine has been shown to prevent gastric ulcers and improve their healing rate in both animal and human studies. 
Not only does it adhere to ulcers, but it builds up the zinc content of surrounding tissues. It also blocks the adhesion of Helicobacter pylori to the stomach wall, inhibits H. pylori-mediated gastric inflammation, and improves H. pylori eradication rates when added to standard triple therapy. And you might remember from part one that gastric ulcers, H. pylori-associated disease, and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug-induced ulceration are three of the indications for PPIs. Given the excellent safety profile of zinc L-carnosine, people who have been prescribed a PPI for treatment of gastric ulcers, H. pylori-associated gastritis or ulceration, or during prolonged use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, might consider a trial of this nutraceutical before they resort to taking PPIs. The second option would be Iberogast. This herbal combination contains standardised extracts of nine plants traditionally used for digestive discomfort. Iberogast has been used in Germany for over 50 years for treatment of functional gastrointestinal disorders. Many people who are prescribed a PPI without one of the proper indications that I listed in part one are actually suffering from functional dyspepsia. There are many trials demonstrating the efficacy of Iberogast for relief of functional dyspepsia. Importantly, Iberogast addresses the underlying drivers of functional dyspepsia, that is, disturbed gastrointestinal motility, visceral hypersensitivity, microbial dysbiosis, gut inflammation, and gastric hypersecretion, so the relief gained after a course of treatment is quite durable. The third option would be deglycerizinated licorice root, abbreviated DGL. Licorice root has a long history of traditional use for treatment of indigestion and peptic ulcers. Unfortunately, a constituent of licorice called glycyrrhizin can, at least with prolonged intake, reduce blood potassium levels, leading to abnormal heart rhythms, high blood pressure, edema, lethargy, heart failure, and hypokalemic myopathy, manifesting as flaccid paralysis. Deglycyrrhizinated licorice root, or DGL, is a licorice preparation from which glycyrrhizin has been removed, making it safe for extended use. DGL has been found to be effective for functional dyspepsia. Your third option would be Lymosi lactobacillus reuteri protectus. Formerly known as Lactobacillus reuteri DSM17938, this probiotic strain has been shown to reduce infantile colic, which is a frequent cause of inappropriate PPI prescription in babies, to treat functional abdominal pain in children, and when combined with a PPI but without antibiotics, to eradicate H. pylori in some individuals. Step two of tapering a PPI If your reflux symptoms are manageable, reduce your PPI dose by half again and stay on this reduced dose for another four to eight weeks before halving the dose once again. Step three, once you're on the lowest available dose, you can either one, stop taking the PPI altogether, or two, take a PPI on a demand basis. That is only when you have reflux symptoms, which should be very rarely if you follow the diet, lifestyle, and gut microbiome restoration advice, which I'm about to give shortly, or three, switch to an H2 blocker such as cimetidine or phenitidine. Ranitidine, which was a popular H2 blocker sold as Zantac, was suspended in 2020 due to contamination with a potentially cancer-causing substance. You can continue to use any of the adjunctive therapies that I previously described to reduce the risk of relapse while you implement lifestyle modification for gastroesophageal reflux disease. If you want to get off PPIs and never have to take them again, you're going to have to get serious about addressing the underlying cause or causes of the symptoms that drove you to take a PPI in the first place. Here's what to do. Adopt a whole food plant slant diet, 
high in fiber and relatively low in fat. This dietary pattern in which whole or minimally processed fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts and seeds provide the bulk of calories will help you lose weight if you need to. Weight loss reduces and can even eliminate gastroesophageal reflux disease or GORD symptoms. High dietary fat intake is associated with an increased risk of both the symptoms of GORD and erosive esophagitis. The presence of dietary fat in the small intestine increases the frequency of transient relaxations of the lower esophageal sphincter in people with gourd. And if you remember from part one, the lower esophageal sphincter is the ring of muscle which is supposed to close off the stomach from the esophagus except when you swallow. Most reflux episodes occur during these transient relaxations, so the less fatter your diet, the less heartburn you'll suffer. Conversely, high fiber intake is associated with a decreased risk of gourd symptoms and increasing the intake of fiber, in particular soluble fiber, reduces the frequency of heartburn and the number of reflux episodes as measured by 24-hour esophageal pH impedance. The next lifestyle modification is avoiding eating large meals, especially at night. You're far more likely to experience indigestion and heartburn after eating a large meal, but the later in the day you eat that meal, the more likely it will trigger your symptoms because the humid gut has a strong circadian rhythm. All of its digestive functions, the secretion of saliva, acid, enzyme and hormones, and also its muscle contractions, become less efficient as the day wears on, increasing the likelihood of reflux, not to mention other functional gastrointestinal disorders such as IBS. People who go to bed within three hours of finishing dinner have a more than sevenfold higher odds of experiencing gourd than people who have a four hour or longer dinner to bedtime. Next, quit smoking, as if you needed another reason to dispense with this costly and destructive habit. Nicotine reduces lower esophageal sphincter pressure and increases acid reflux events. You'll also want to check the adverse reactions of any other medications that you're taking. Many of them are known to exacerbate gourd symptoms. Antibiotics, oral bisphosphonates, iron supplements, ibuprofen and aspirin, anticholinergics, tricyclic antidepressants, calcium channel blockers and nitrates, opioid narcotics, progesterone, benzodiazepines and theophylline are all potential culprits. Now, while you're working on addressing underlying causes, you may also need to remove reflux triggers from your daily routine. If you've adopted a low-fat, whole-food, plant-based diet but are still experiencing gourd symptoms, eliminate the following common reflux triggers from your diet and then add them back at the rate of one new food every three days to pin down the culprits in your particular case. Those common reflux triggers are spicy food, alcohol, onions, tomatoes, apples, oranges and their juice, nuts, carbonated beverages, coffee, black tea and chocolate. You may be able to reintroduce these foods eventually as you work on resolving the underlying causes of your reflux. Next, avoid lying down within three hours after a meal or bending or straining, for example, weightlifting or heavy gardening within that time period. And finally, elevate the head of your bed by 10 to 15 centimeters. Prop it up on a couple of house bricks or stacks of timber. Propping yourself up with pillows doesn't work. Correcting gut dysbiosis after PPI use. As mentioned in part one, PPIs cause significant disruption to the gut microbiota, especially in the small intestine. Taking a PPI increases the odds of developing small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO by 70%. If you are experiencing symptoms such as abdominal bloating and distension, excessive gas, 
and either diarrhea or constipation during or after taking a PPI, it may be worth undergoing testing for SIBO and treating it using appropriate probiotics, prebiotics and or herbal antimicrobials if you are found to have it. Even if you don't have post-PPI SIBO, you're still likely to have a significant degree of dysbiosis, which you should address through eating a diverse, high-fiber, whole-food, plant-rich diet, getting regular exercise, preferably outdoors and in nature to harness its beneficial effects on your microbiome, adopting an optimal pattern of meal timing, that is a large breakfast, a medium-sized lunch and a small dinner, eaten as early as possible, and if appropriate to your circumstances, periodic short water-only fast, short meaning between two and three days, and or time-restricted eating, that is confining eating to an eight to 10 hour window, for example, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. We've had a gutful of PPIs. In summary, proton pump inhibitors are just the latest in a long line of wonder drugs, which were released onto the market with the promise that they were highly effective and very safe and hence quickly outstripped their initial prescribing indications to the point where if a person walked into a doctor's office complaining of any kind of tummy upset, they were likely to walk out again with a prescription for a PPI. The initial fanfare of enthusiasm for PPIs has now quietened into muted background music and may in time transform into a dirge as research brings to light the full extent of the impact of these drugs, especially their deleterious effects on the delicate balance of gut bacteria, which plays such a huge role in our physical and psychological health. In the meantime, it's up to each individual to take responsibility for their health, and this includes quizzing their doctor about the cost-benefit analysis of each of the drugs they've prescribed. And at the end of the post accompanying this podcast episode, I've included some PPI education and deprescribing resources that are useful sources of information to share with your doctor when discussing the possibility of discontinuing a PPI. And finally, if you feel you're getting value from reading or, or listening to my work, please consider a paid subscription, which you can sign up for at robintudor.substack.com. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and on your socials and make sure you subscribe to my Empowered Substack so you never miss a post.